Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The city of Boston could face a choice as sea levels rise. Pay a lot soon to build a seawall or pay later. We could be looking at sunny day flooding in much of downtown Boston, and that would cost billions of dollars a year. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. From Boston Harbor to coastal New Hampshire, we'll look at preparing for rising tides. We'll also explore a place that's been threatened by the sea since it was created by the glaciers. The South Shore, which faces the ocean, erodes between four and five feet a year. Martha's Vineyard in a meeting of land and sea. And what happens when a historic part of New England tries to break with the past? Goodbye, Pioneer Valley. Hello, West Mass. It's next. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, an island that has been slowly eroding for 20,000 years has a more immediate threat. But first, the same natural forces that have been eating away at the soft soil of Martha's Vineyard have long been a threat to Boston. Sitting right at sea level, much of the historic port city is threatened by any rise in the oceans. And with climate change fueling projections of routine flooding and worse over the next couple decades, city officials have started to look at what to do. David Abel covers the environment for the Boston Globe. He's been reporting on a plan called Climate Ready Boston, which includes a number of strategies, including the potential for a big and expensive seawall in Boston Harbor. David, welcome to Next. Thank you. Maybe you can draw us a little bit of a mental picture here. What would it look like, this gigantic seawall, if, if indeed it were built? So I should say that this is very much just a proposal And it's something that people would have considered pie in the sky until recently, but because of these models suggesting that sea level rise is going to be accelerating and potentially devastating to our region, there has been some serious consideration and now money on the table with a lot of uh, serious minds considering building a massive seawall that would extend potentially from the north of Boston Harbor to the south of Boston Harbor. It could take various forms, and there is a team of scientists and engineers that are currently looking very closely at what might be the best way of extending a sea barrier through Boston Harbor to reduce the high tides and to reduce potentially catastrophic storm surges given the possibility of more intense storms over the coming century. Projects like this are very expensive, and maybe we can talk about that uh, in a moment, how realistic it even is to to build a, a project of the type envisioned. But it has been done in other places. You looked into cities, including European cities, that have built seawalls. Well, what have you found? I mean, what might apply to, to Boston here? So there are similar kinds of walls sea barriers that exist in places like Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Venice in Italy is building a a different type of wall. There are massive sea barriers that have been built 
post-Hurricane Katrina on the periphery of New Orleans. These are expensive barriers, and uh, the costs that we're talking about are potentially in the range of tens of billions of dollars, depending on how they're built, where they're built, and uh, whether they're built at a certain scale or, or whether they're built smaller initially and are allowed to be or designed to be built in stages so that they can rise as seas rise uh, in the future. Billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars, probably something that could be a, a bit hard to stomach for a region that just got done with a, with a big dig project. When you, when you talk to people about about the possibility of paying for this, what, what are they saying? Even if the sea levels are rising, maybe there's, there's no way to pay for something as, as massive as a seawall this, this expansive. When you talk to folks or policymakers or scientists, the issue is whether it will be too expensive not to build the wall. There are studies that suggest as seas rise to potentially as much as three feet by the middle of this century and as much as potentially eight feet by the end of the century, we could be looking at sunny day flooding when tides rise in much of downtown Boston. And that alone would cost uh, billions of dollars a year, potentially. And maybe you can explain what that flooding might look like. You've got some wonderful maps in your story in the Boston Globe uh, that we'll link to on our site, nextnewengland.org. And it shows some of the vulnerable areas, the very low-lying areas of the city that are, are filled in tidelands, really. Maybe you could paint a picture of, of what a, a normal-day flood might look like in, on the streets of Boston. So a lot of historic Boston, in some ways, is fill. If you know the city of Boston, you know places like the Back Bay, you know the Financial District, you know uh, this whole entire new area, which goes by various names, whether it's called the Innovation District or the South Boston Waterfront. These are all landfill areas. These are unnatural areas where the land has been extended and they are very much close to current sea levels. And those areas are incredibly vulnerable to rising seas. We already, in portions of downtown Boston, have flooding when, uh, when we have so-called king tides or exceptionally high tides. Of course, there's also the environmental cost of doing something like this. Many environmentalists would be worried about the damage to to the islands in the harbor and some of the aquatic life underneath. What what are people saying about that? Absolutely. You know, before we had the $24 billion big dig, we had another major public works project, and that project was cleaning up Boston Harbor, which was uh, one of the largest environmental restoration projects on the planet. And there's clearly concern that if you create this unnatural barrier, you are changing an ecosystem that has been cleaned up uh, meticulously over the last few decades. And you would have uh, different currents and different flows of water. It would change potentially marine life. It could have an impact on seagrass and estuaries and all kinds of uh, fragile ecosystems that could be changed substantially if you block the natural flow of water. So there's the long-term environmental cost, what comes with climate change, uh, the need to think about this as a protective measure for the city, certainly. 
there's the short-term cost of how you'd begin to pay for something like this. And then there's a lot of politics around a question uh, of building a seawall. Right now, the city of Boston seems to be somewhat at odds with the new Trump administration around its status as a sanctuary city. Do, do you think that given the enormous amount of federal help that would be needed for a project like this, that right now Boston's politically placed to ask for federal assistance in building a maybe very necessary project? So a project like this would require not just financial assistance, but uh, technical assistance by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uh, and other federal agencies. So this would not just be a city or state project. That said, this is something more of a generational project that would probably not get off the drawing boards during the Trump administration. So this is something that would require a long amount of consideration and investigation and blueprints before I think anyone would start seeking development dollars. And I imagine it would it would probably be uh, at least a decade before we were talking about anything that amounted to construction. It is interesting, though, to imagine that if a project like this didn't get built for a few years, that there may be some new types of technology that could be employed. Do you think that there's some room here, David, for thinking in a bigger way than, than building a barrier where maybe we could employ some types of new technology and some new thinking to, to reimagine this idea of living with, with higher seas? Absolutely. And uh, a few years ago, Boston held a, uh, a competition for a variety of ideas. And there are all kinds of innovative ideas. And, you know, some of it involves building large receptacles that would essentially be tanks where water would be funneled when the seas rise. And there are all kinds of options for trying to reduce the impact of the ocean essentially flooding the city of Boston. It, it, it all depends on, though, how much carbon emissions that we are releasing and it all depends on the uh, rate of glacial melt and, you know, the rate of sea level rise about what we actually do to respond. David Abel covers environmental issues for the Boston Globe. David, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. As Boston considers building an intricate seawall, a bit further up the seacoast in New Hampshire, communities are also preparing for the impacts of sea level rise. But as NHPR's Jason Moon reports, the city of Portsmouth is tackling the problem in a different way. In downtown Portsmouth, there's this little red brick building that sits across the water from Pierce Island. There's nothing remarkable about it. It's just a windowless brick box with a set of gray doors. But for Portsmouth's environmental planner, Peter Britz, those doors represent the front lines in the struggle to protect the city from a rising ocean. We're looking at the outside of the pump station with doors and two steps up to the pump station, and the water has gotten to the basically the bottom of the first step. Keeping water away from those doors is important to Brits because of what's behind them, a major pump station for the city's sewage system. When a big event like a hurricane or, or flooding event happens on the coast or sea level rise over the long term happens and water 
compromises this pump station, it essentially stops the ability to treat wastewater. In other words, if the water reaches this door sill, the entire city of Portsmouth might not be able to flush the toilet. Keeping this protected is a, is a big priority for the city. Finding vulnerabilities like this in the city's infrastructure is something on Brits's mind these days. He's working on a sophisticated analysis of how water will enter the city during a flood to find more potential weak spots, whether it's a door sill that's too low or a culvert that's too narrow. It's just one of the ways communities around the seacoast are preparing for a future with rising seas and bigger storms. Scientists predict the average high tide could rise by as much as two feet by the year 2050. And by the year 2100, it could be over six feet higher than it is today. But like Brits's work in Portsmouth, many of the efforts around the seacoast to prepare don't involve building huge levees or erecting massive seawalls. In fact, at nearby Cuts Cove in Portsmouth, they're doing the opposite. David Burdick with the University of New Hampshire is showing me what might be the most counterintuitive solution to climate readiness, tearing down an existing seawall. This will be the first living shoreline where we're trying to get rid of a non-living shoreline. What Burdick means by non-living in this case is something called riprap, which currently lines Cuts Cove. It's basically a bank of large rocks piled along the water's edge. This type of hard coastal armoring has long been a hallmark of how coastal communities have protected their shorelines. Now, Burdick and a team of engineers are planning to replace a large section of the steep rock bank with a gradually sloping salt marsh, a living shoreline. That salt marsh will grow in elevation as it's flooded with salt water. It collects sediments and it will actually build an elevation, protecting the shoreline behind it. The marsh will provide protection for the shoreline, just like the riprap, but it will also do something that rock wall can't, provide an important habitat for wildlife. If we create systems where we don't have these salt marshes, like these walls, we're not going to have the fish. So if we want fish, if we want healthy habitats, we're going to have to have a combination of hard structures and soft structures. While Burdick is busy creating natural habitats that protect shorelines, the city of Dover is hoping to do something similar. Only in this case, the habitat is for people and businesses. City planner Steve Bird and engineer Rob Rosine show me a patch of overgrown land near the Kachiko River in Dover. It used to be the site of a factory, then the city's wastewater treatment plant. Today, Bird and Rosine imagine it as a mixed-use development with apartments, retail spaces, and a waterfront park. They want to use a wholesale redevelopment of this spot as an opportunity to fortify 2,000 feet of waterfront property. And the way to do that, Rosine says, is to build with the knowledge that, like it or not, the area will flood. You plan for storms to occur. So we would, there would be certain spaces here where we would say, all right, when this area floods, we're going to put the floods through here and we're going to design for it so that there's uh, minimal impact. If all goes according to plan, the waterfront park will act as a sort of sponge for the structures in the development, protecting them from the effects of climate change for decades to come. These type of changes in planning are very much like you would see a change in electrical efficiency or fire safety or water quality where it's just an incremental cost. Incremental costs that will likely show up in ways large, small, and unexpected over the next several decades as New Hampshire's seacoast tries to adapt to a new reality. Jason Moon reported that story last August for New Hampshire Public Radio. Coming up, a magical island that is being loved, perhaps, a bit too much. It's next. 
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Relentlessly and unavoidably, Martha's Vineyard is disappearing. That's how ecologist David Foster begins his new book, A Meeting of Land and Sea, Nature and the Future of Martha's Vineyard. He's referring to the rapid rate of erosion on parts of the island. Foster also chronicles another threat to the vineyard's natural beauty, tourism and development. But he says the island's six towns have come up with a way to manage that growth, and they can offer an example to other parts of New England. David Foster is a faculty member at Harvard, and he's director of the Harvard Forest. He joins us from the studios of WMVY on Martha's Vineyard. David, welcome to Next. Wonderful to be here. I'm wondering if you can start with a bit of the geological history of Martha's Vineyard and the other islands off the coast. Yeah, so the whole southern coast of New England is really quite unique, different from all the rest of the mainland and the other coast. It was all created by the glacier, uh, deposited about 25,000 years ago. The entire region that extends from Cape Cod down to Long Island is sand and gravel pushed into and dropped into place by the ice. And so that sand and gravel makes for a very different kind of soil composition than a lot of the rest of the New England shoreline, for instance, the, you know, the iconic main rocky shoreline. Oh, yeah, that, that part of uh, New England up north is solid bedrock. And so the waves crash on it and the water drains away. Whereas down here when the waves crash on the beaches and on the cliffs of Martha's Vineyard and the rest of this south coastal landscape, it just erodes. Uh, once the sand and gravel have water in them, they just flow right away. So maybe you can talk a bit about that erosion and how quickly it's happening on Martha's Vineyard. It's not a new phenomenon. It's been happening for thousands of years. Yeah, well, when the glaciers receded, the uh, sea level was about 300 feet lower than it is today. The south coast of New England extended 50 miles further out than it does today. But as the Sea level rose as the glaciers melted, the land pulled back, and eventually these islands were created. And ever since they've been formed, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, Block Island, they've all been eroding and getting smaller over time. And how fast is Martha's Vineyard eroding? Well, the bulk of the island up to the north side um, erodes relatively little, but the south shore, which faces the ocean, erodes between four and five feet a year. I'm wondering if you can paint a picture of this unique ecosystem that the vineyard possesses. As you look at some of the maps in your beautiful book, you see how Martha's Vineyard and the surrounding islands are almost a type of a microclimate. And then you add in this this sandy and, and um, silty soil that's much different than the soil that's that's on land. And you have a very different type of ecosystem than you would in the rest of Massachusetts or the rest of southern New England. It's got a tremendous array of landscapes across it. It's got very hilly terrain, which actually has majestic forests in it that, you know, are not that different from some of the forests that we have inland. But then there are expansive 
sand plains, broadly flat, very well-drained dry soils that have scrubby vegetation, oak-dominated, very open, very different from anything we'd have inland. So you have this, this beautiful uh, ecological system, these tall cliffs, some of which are, are eroding into the sea fast, and this beautiful changing kind of environment and landscape. One of the, the big tensions in your book, though, is the tension of, of man versus this island and how much development is going to be the, the present and future of Martha's Vineyard. I'll ask for some specifics in a moment, but I guess I'm wondering if you can just tell us broadly uh, about how that plays out on a daily basis, the tensions between people wanting to live, shop, work there, and the, the natural environment that surrounds them. Development, the building of houses, roads, parking lots, and so on, it's, it's the biggest threat that faces this island. Is it because of, of tourism? Are there other pressures that are forcing the the tension between uh, developers and, and others? No, the tension is, is really all about tourism. There's a resident population out here of about 18,000 people or so, just a, a thriving, wonderful landscape of people doing what people do everywhere, plus, you know, fishing and farming and, and other activities. But it's the pressure for second homes. It's the pressure for monstrous developments, oversized houses that are perched in places that historically people would never have considered building, like close to the water. So at what point then did the people living on the island or people who wanted to protect the island feel like the development was getting to be a little bit too much? Well, the real crisis emerged in the 60s and early 70s when people on the island and people in the state looked around and could see what was happening to other coastal landscapes farther south and on the mainland. And it was also recognized that these small towns out here were completely unprepared to deal with the scale of activity and the kinds of money and professional advice that uh, big-time developers could bring. You tell a story about uh, a 1969 report. The County Planning Commission hired an engineering firm called Metcalf and Eddy to create a plan to uh, preserve and enhance the character of the island, and there are some pretty grim predictions in there. Do you think you could read us maybe a short excerpt from that report? And in 1971, the conclusion that they came out with was, by the time strong countywide or regional government with sufficient powers to deal effectively with the development is created, Martha probably will have been raped. This was certainly the case in Long Island, Staten Island, along the New Jersey coast and Cape Cod, where attempts to protect the environment and improve the year-round economy were found to be largely ineffective on a town-by-town basis. And so Metcalf and Eddy really argued for a comprehensive island-wide approach. Mm. Some very strong language to to make that argument. Did, Did it work? Did that comprehensive approach take hold then? Well, the report itself was initially rejected because the individual towns felt that they should be handling things themselves as opposed to having some kind of regional approach. But at the same time that Metcalf and Eddie came out with this report, Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, made a proposal for the federal government to come in and help conserve Martha's Vineyard, 
Nantucket, and part of the Elizabeth Islands. And so it was actually the two elements coming together. It was Metcalf and Eddy laying out very clearly the threats and a possible solution. And it was this huge outside threat of the federal government coming in and purchasing land that led the individual towns to actually mobilize, develop much more effective policies themselves, and ultimately for the state of Massachusetts to help Martha's Vineyard create this regulatory body, the Martha's Vineyard Commission. I wonder if that can teach us something about the way the rest of New England might need to govern itself in the future. Town-by-town rule is so very important to us in all of the New England states, and a a story like this tells us that maybe even on a small island, the towns have to work together if you're going to preserve something that you care about. I think that's right. I mean, I think that the solution that was found out here didn't undercut individual property rights. It didn't undercut, although it did create some tensions with individual towns, but it really argued that you need to have a broader perspective, a regional scale perspective. And there are movements elsewhere in New England to do this kind of thing. And if done well, it can be very effective. A lot of your book looks at the history of this place, how it was shaped and how it has changed over the years. If you look ahead a little bit, given what you've you've learned about Martha's Vineyard, what do you see? What do you see as the future for the island? We're going to be continued to be affected by physical processes like erosion. There will be tremendous hurricanes that hit this island in the future, just as they have in the past. And I would say the island is not very well prepared for that. And this landscape, which was so heavily farmed in the 19th century, is still recovering from that. These forests that are out here are growing back in a tremendous way and getting more majestic every day. So all those natural processes are ongoing, and then there's this constant struggle with development and human activity trying to undercut these natural forces. But that's such a an interesting paradox, isn't it? It's a place that people want to come and visit because it's so beautiful, but I don't know if if you feel like maybe Martha's Vineyard is a place that's in danger of being loved too much. It's always been an issue. Every new group wants to love the island for themselves, and yet they always end up bringing their friends and more people along. So it's a constant uh, it's a constant challenge. The book is called A Meeting of Land and Sea, Nature and the Future of Martha's Vineyard, and the author is David Foster. David, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Well, wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. David Foster's book is out next week from Yale University Press. About six miles southeast of the vineyard lies a smaller island, also known for high-end tourism, Nantucket. Now, on Nantucket, the average house costs $1.2 million. So is there a place for working people to make their homes on the island? Daniel Richards brings us this story of one woman who's hoping to become a homeowner on Nantucket. When Alicia first moved to Nantucket in 2006, she realized two things. First, she loved this island off the coast of Massachusetts. The quiet and the quaintness, the cobblestone street. And second, if you're not a millionaire, it's really hard to find a place to live. I started out 14th Swain Street, and then I went to Teasdale Circle, and then... I a lot of times, she could only afford to rent a single room. 
She'd have to hang sheets from the ceiling to separate out rooms for herself and her kids. And even then, the rent could be as much as $1,400 a month. I could not, literally could not find anywhere affordable with myself and my kids. Luckily, in 2011, Alicia got a spot in one of Nantucket's few government-supported rental units. Her rent's on a sliding scale. It never costs more than a third of her monthly income. And it has three bedrooms, one for her and each of her kids. This is the kitchen area. I have that as a, a storeroom type of thing right there. and a back The stability of her new apartment has allowed Alicia to save some money, and she's been able to quit her seasonal job at a resort. Now she works year-round at the post office and is looking to take the next step towards making this island her permanent home. Alicia's entered a lottery to buy a house of her own in a new affordable housing development on the island. If she gets picked, she'll get to be something she never expected, a homeowner on Nantucket. You have to submit, and then after that, they let you know. <laughs> the development she's applying to is called Sachem's Path. Last spring, a lottery was held for the first 15 homes in Sachem's Path. Alicia entered that one, but it didn't work out. There's still 22 homes remaining for this current lottery. But winning the lottery isn't the end of the process. If she does win, she'll still need to buy the house. And the homes, they range from about $300,000 to $500,000. $500,000 doesn't qualify as affordable in most of the country. But Nantucket's not like most of the country. The average house here costs $1.2 million. It's not just working class folks like Alicia who can't afford a home here. Lots of white collar professionals, not to mention teachers, nurses, and firefighters, can't afford it either. This problem isn't new. In fact, Sachem's Path is just the final piece of a decades-long project to develop housing on the island for working people. It started back in 1984, when the town set aside a vacant piece of land in the middle of the island for affordable housing development. Since 1994, it's been Renee Seely's job to fill it up. Hi. No, no. I'm scared of dogs. Oh yeah, I love dogs. I actually just got bit by one last year though, and ever since But I was willing to brave it out to talk with Renee, even if it meant driving around with her Chihuahua Skip on my lap. Renee's a happy warrior in an uphill battle to make Nantucket a place where working people can live. As director and sole employee of the Nantucket Housing Authority, she spent 20 years bringing affordable housing to the small piece of land the town set aside for this purpose. That piece of land is almost full. Sachem's Path, where Alicia hopes to buy a home, will be the last development on the parcel. With Skip shivering on my lap, Renee drove me there. We're entering Sachem's Path right now. This is um, my pride and joy right now. The houses look pretty high-end. They're all clad in cedar shingles, like just about every other house on Nantucket. Each one's a little different, too, which helps keep it from feeling too cookie-cutter a development. It looks like a Nantucket take on a suburban subdivision. Renee took me back to her office to talk about how Sachem's Path came to be, who it will serve, and how it fits into the bigger puzzle of housing on Nantucket. So it gets kind of complicated, but that plan behind your head is all of the property that... That plan behind my head 
was a giant map of the original parcel the town gave to the housing authority. And we created this subdivision. It's filled with color-coded blocks. And chopped off this piece here. Showing all the types of developments that have been built there over the years. And this was built with a federal loan. This was developed again with a financial assistance from the state. And this was it's like a catalog of all the different ways housing developments can be subsidized in America. Then we created these little lots to... It's an island within an island. Houses. Affordable housing in a sea of million-dollar homes. One of the first projects built on the site was traditional low-income rental housing. That's where Alicia currently lives. For Alicia and her kids, having an apartment of their own changed everything. We felt like a family. Like for my daughter, she improved in school a lot after the stability and my son also. But even though her current living situation is the best she's had on the island, Alicia's still eager to own a house herself. You know, you never know what tomorrow might bring. At least when you have your own, there's some form of stability. And beyond that, there's a deeper reason. Everybody has goals. And in my culture, to earn a house is an accomplishment. Alicia's worked hard to get to where she is. But even if everyone on Nantucket worked as hard as Alicia, there still wouldn't be enough housing to go around. Renee says more homes need to be built on the island for people of just about every income level. But it's hard to do in a place like Nantucket, a small island that seems dedicated to both environmental conservation and historic preservation. You know, we just can't keep building and building and building. At some point in time, we have to be done. To be clear, Renee doesn't think that time will come soon, but large projects like Sachem's Path are becoming harder and harder to develop. In response to this, a network of organizations has grown up around the Housing Authority to tackle the problem in creative ways. And even with Renee's talk of being done, she doesn't seem to really believe it. Sachem's Path is complete, and her island within an island is about to be all filled up, but she's already on to a new project. She's trying to create a fund for the housing authority to buy more land in the future. And after that? I always keep this picture on my bulletin board. Um, back in the early 1900s, Nantucket had these massive, huge Victorian hotels. Whoa. Whoa. Now, look at that. What if we recreated that and turned it into a bunch of affordable apartments? What would be wrong with that? Sitting out there on the veranda? I love it. I like to keep that. Regardless of what gets built on Nantucket in the future, Renee's thrilled that for the families who end up moving into Sachem's Path, there's going to be a new, permanent home on this island for them very soon. And Alicia's family might be one of them. But even if she doesn't get picked, she's not planning on leaving. I call it my fairy tale island. Anybody's, oh, where's that time like my fairy tale island? And that's how I refer to it, because it's so peaceful and calm and you have to really plan to come here. You can't just arrive. <laughs> that was Daniel Richards reporting for the Transom Story Workshop. Since that story was reported in December, the lottery for Sachem's path took place. Unfortunately, Alicia didn't win, but she says she plans to continue living in her rental on Nantucket. Coming up, when does a branding campaign for a state or a region work? And when does it fall flat? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage 
including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. The song you're hearing is part of a new campaign by the region long known as the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts to rebrand itself as West Mass. West Mass. Social media being what it is, the campaign has been widely mocked. Between our state mottos, our branding campaigns, and our tourism slogans, the New England states have sometimes struggled and sometimes succeeded in capturing the imaginations of locals and visitors alike. To talk about this, we invited in the Connecticut state historian, Walt Woodward, who has some personal experience creating campaigns just like this. Welcome to Next. Oh, it's nice to be here. Love the show. Does West Mass say Pioneer Valley to you? Well, I'm a historian. West Mass <laughs> does not say Pioneer Valley, and I'll always like the Pioneer Valley because I'm a colonial historian. But the logic behind it is, I think, pretty clear. Springfield is getting ready to build a multi-million dollar MGM casino. And they think they are going to become a hub with a much larger tourist draw than they used to have. So instead of thinking up the valley, they're now thinking east and west over towards Boston and out towards the Berkshires. And so they want to be, I guess, they want to be really hip. They seem to have found a way to be really hip in 1995. But, the, you know, the, the, the objective, I think, of trying to become West Mass is really to uh, sort of rebrand themselves for this new, very hip casino town that they're about to become. The idea that something would be known as the Pioneer Valley, to be fair, does feel a little bit moldy. I mean, how did it become the Pioneer Valley well, in the first place? It, it became the Pioneer Valley in early in the 20th century, near the, Tercen, the time of the Tercentenary, which makes sense. You know, when people began to move out of Connecticut back in the late 1600s and 1700s, they did, in fact, move up. Instead of moving west, they moved north, and they moved up the Connecticut River. As people celebrated that history on the 300th anniversary, it was still real and very vibrant to them, and becoming the Pioneer Valley gave them an identity West Mass is built to inspire the people of the old Pioneer Valley to think of themselves as progressive and forward-looking, but that's aspirational. It may be potential, but unless it's you know actually in some form happening on the ground, incipient, it's a struggle to make it happen. We also now, I you know, when I was in the advertising business, they did not have social media and. Any campaign that smacks of inauthenticity, social media is going to jump on it instantly. And the West Mass campaign was, if you, if you follow uh, hashtag West Mass on Twitter, it was just pummeled. Talk a bit about, about your history doing this and, and working on campaigns just like this. Well, before I became a historian, I had a career in the music and the advertising business. And one of the things I, I moved towards a specialty in was doing advertising music. And my company really developed a niche in working and helping tourism products get nice musical identities and brand them. So over the years, I did many campaigns, uh, State of Kentucky, 
state of Ohio, Philadelphia, Idaho, Kansas. As a, as a songwriter, as an ad executive, what would you start with? What would you start thinking about? What we did then was try to find what's at the heart of the identity of the, the state, the place. What is it that is really in your DNA that makes you different? Many campaigns, advertising people are always trying to be clever. And clever is great. But if clever doesn't help you get to that really real identity of a place, you miss it. You know, recently a campaign in Rhode Island died even before it was born. It was died on introduction, the cooler and warmer. Yeah, Rhode Island, campaign. cooler and warmer. Yeah. And this, you know, this is really an unfortunate story, I think, because it's cooler and warmer is generic. But it's the it's the product of uh, it's the brainchild of a brilliant graphic artist named Milton Glaser, who is the person who did the I Love New York campaign, did the logo for it many years ago. And that that's one of the classic place branding campaigns of all time. Iconic. It's worked for decades. When when Rhode Island went to him, he went through any number of things and he developed a logo. Looks like a postage stamp, had a billowing sail on it. And nice colors looked like a semaphore flag and the Rhode Island cooler and warmer. His idea was, you know, showing this this billowing sail reflects this is a cooler place. The people here do cooler things. And we we are warmer than the other people in frosty old New England. So I wanted to fight the stereotype. Well, unfortunately, they rolled it out with a video. The video showed somebody skateboarding. Well, they weren't. It wasn't a skateboarder in uh, Rhode Island. It was a skateboarder from Iceland. They showed great restaurants. The restaurants weren't in Rhode Island. They were in Massachusetts. The social media, the people of Rhode Island got on it and they killed it. You, you've got to do something real yeah. about that place. Connecticut has a history of doing really lame, uh, <laughs> lame tourism themes. I pulled together a list coming on. This is from 1980 to 2012. And this, so, so 1980 to 2012, this is just the state of Connecticut. This is the state of Connecticut. Okay. These are all the ways we have tried to rebrand ourselves to attract the rest of America. Okay. <laughs> Better yet, Connecticut. See America in Connecticut. Classic Connecticut, Pride of New England, 1993. Connecticut, we're full of surprises. Imagine what social media could have done with that. 2005, Connect in Connecticut. 2007, Real Fun is Closer Than You Think. I, I don't remember that one. I don't either. It must have gone quickly. 2008, Connecticut, your staycation destination. That's after the stock market all plummeted. <laughs> and then in 2012, still revolutionary. Still revolutionary is built on a tradition that is truly woven into the DNA of the state. But by you saying still revolutionary, it's almost like we're we're apologizing for uh, it somehow. Th that's a really good point. <laughs> it, it, uh, it, if we actually had this revolutionary spirit at full throttle right now, you could just say revolutionary. And the people of the state would say, Darn right. That's what we are. Let's go. You know, it's still revolutionary. Eh, okay. 
Well, I, I wanted to actually play a couple other clips. We took a, a trip uh, last year to the Big E. And, of course, that's located in what's now known as West Mass. Um, but the Big E is the Big Eastern States Exposition. And there's state buildings. So you can go and visit people who are representatives of each state. And we wanted to ask about the tourism slogans or maybe the state mottos of each of the states. I, I stopped by the um, New Hampshire booth to talk with Executive Counselor Joe Kenny, uh, who was there manning a booth about the very famous New Hampshire slogan. What do you think the state motto should be if it wasn't live free or die? I mean, everybody in the world knows live free or die. I mean, is, there, is there another state motto that's maybe a little cheerier, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I think um, there's a lot of play on live free or die, you know, live free and play. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things in the travel tourism uh, uses that that particular uh, model for. So I think uh, actually uh, you can build upon it. What do you think about that? It's a state model that everyone knows, as I suggest there. It's not the cheeriest thing, and it, it certainly takes us back in history. Um, will live free or die always be the best possible motto slogan for New Hampshire? New Hampshire is in a really tough position as far as tourism because it's a very relatively low-tax state and they don't spend a lot of money on tourism. The, the or die sort of is a downer. It, the, but you know, live free is not altogether bad, but I'm not sure that people here had ever disassociated it from the rest of the slogans. So it has possibilities, but it's also, it's, it's, you know, it's known, and because of that, not all that exciting. Let's listen to me talking with a, a parks employee from, from the state of Vermont asking about their state motto. So do you know what the Vermont state motto is? The Green Mountain State. Well, that's what it's called. Do you know what, do you know what the actual motto is? Um, I, I believe it's freedom and unity. Freedom yeah. and unity. That's right. I was, trying, I was trying to remember that. That's a pretty good one, yes, right? Um, so if you had to make up a motto for the state yourself, what would it be? Come be yourselves with us. That's original. I that's pretty good. Come be yourself with us. I like that. Yeah. That's pretty nice. I don't know. He made that up on his own. Come be yourself with you us. You know what? Bad. I'll tell you what. A plus to that guy. Call the agency. Now, another state that I want to bring up, the, the last state we haven't talked about in New England, is the state of Maine. I've always thought that the most brilliant thing from when I was a child was the very simple Maine license plate with the red lobster on it, and it said vacation land. Because to me, if I was trying to think about where I might want to go spend my vacation, and in the back of my mind, I thought there was a place that called itself vacation land, that might, I don't know, be on my short list. To me, that sustains. Well, and again, it's a case of a state with very few resources uh, trying to capitalize in one of the most effective advertising tools it has on its license plates with something that will attract other people. Uh, it is really effective. In their, on their website and in their tourism these days, they, they do come discover your main thing. But that's you know, completely commensurate with this idea of vacation land. Before we go, I actually want to loop back to this greater region. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of why New England's called New England? Well, this is great. This is one of the most effective place branding campaigns of all time. And it goes back to the year 1614 when a person many of us learned about in school, Captain John Smith. If you remember him, Captain John Smith was one of the founders of Jamestown, and he's, he's often associated with the founding of that colony. 
he had a very troubled tenure there. It, he, he couldn't get along with anybody and he got hurt in an accident and he went back to England. But in 1614, he got some backers to back an exploration voyage to come to this area that didn't have a real solid name. People called it Norum Vega. They called it Northern Virginia. They called it Canada. They called it Pemaquita. The one thing they knew about it is that it was extremely cold and people went there and died. And that was because in 1607, a man named George Popham had set up a colony on, in Maine, Sagadehawk. That colony had failed in the first winter, same year as Jamestown, but this colony was wiped out because of the cold. So John Smith comes to explore it in 1614, spends two years going uh, into the interior and up and down the coast, goes back to England and says, this is where I'm staking my claim. And he launches a place-branding campaign to convince the most important target audience, not the natives who would have hated the campaign from the beginning, the people who actually lived there, but the people he wanted to back him in leading colonization of the region. He tried to convince them that I found a place that is exactly like England. The climate, it's just got more opportunity. So he, over the next 16 years, wrote six different tracts or books about New England. He did target marketing. He did blanket <laughs> marketing. He did everything trying to convince people, A, that this area was just like England, and B, that he was the guy to lead colonization there. He convinced them of A. He never convinced them of B. But in the process of writing all these wonderful travel publications, he became known as a celebrated author, kind of the Rick Steves of the 17th century England. <laughs> uh, Walt Woodward is the Connecticut State Historian. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, John. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Annie Sinsabow. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.